Have you ever picked up a book and from page one, you're just like sucked in? Maybe it's the title or the overall theme of the book that kind of draws you in, that kind of makes you excited. But as you begin reading it, it's just like you cannot put it down. There have been a couple of times where my kids, we've taken them to the bookstore or taken them somewhere and they picked up a book and they start reading it as we leave the store. And by the time we get home, they're halfway done. And we walk in the house and they just walk to their rooms and, and come out the next morning and say, I finished the book. Has that ever happened to you? As you read and as you dive into it, maybe all of a sudden cooking dinner for the family is not that important. Tonight is a good night for you to fend for yourselves. You <laughs> start reading the book and you crawl in bed and you think, you know what? If I could just get an hour of sleep before work, it'll be okay. And then before you know it, you've missed work. Have you ever had a book like that that just kind of sucks you in and draws you in and you just can't wait to turn to the next page? You say, when I get to the next chapter, I'll stop. But then it leaves you hanging, so you've got to go to the next one. This week, as I have been looking at the book of Thessalonians, I've been thinking about that. And I can't imagine how it was for the church of Thessalonica when they received this letter. But as I began to read this letter, and as I saw these first three verses, and focused on these first three verses this week, I couldn't help but think about them being drawn in and being sucked in to what this letter is all about. And so this morning we're going to dive into these first three verses, and I promise I'll let you go home after those first three verses and make you come back next week for the rest of the story. But as we look at this passage and as we see this today, Paul is writing this, and I can't help but think it was of great encouragement to the church of Thessalonica. And hopefully as we see these verses this morning, hopefully this will be a great encouragement to us as well as we think on these things and as we focus on these things. If you have your Bible with you this morning, I encourage you to turn to 1 Thessalonians 1. And when you find 1 Thessalonians 1, let your finger go down to verse 1, and let's stand together. And I'll read this out loud, and you guys can follow along with me in your copy of the Scriptures. I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 1 through 3 read this way. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of Thessalonians in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us. We thank you for the opportunity, Lord, we have to be together this morning. And as we open this book this morning, I pray you'd open our hearts to what you have for us. I pray we would hear from you today, Lord. I pray that you would speak to our minds and hearts and meet us where we are this morning and let us drink in what you have for us today. Give me the words to share. Take my mind and my heart and my tongue, Lord, and allow me to share what you'd have us to hear. Nothing more, Lord, but certainly nothing less. And I know that I'm an unworthy man, but I do pray that we would hear from you today. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The 
This morning as we dive into this passage, there are three headings that we're going to look at this morning. The first one is greetings. The second one is gratitude. And the third one is growth. And as we look at these three verses, we're going to use these as our headings to kind of lead us through and kind of direct us through. The first heading we see here this morning is greetings. And as we look at this thought of greetings, we see in verse 1, Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy. Now we looked at these three last week as we were together. These three were the ones who planted the church at Thessalonica. And all of them came from Thessalonica. And we now find them in Corinth. This letter is being written to Thessalonica from Corinth. And that's where we see these men right now. Timothy had returned after they were forced out. Timothy returned to Thessalonica. And he brought a report back to Paul and Silas as they were there in Corinth. And he has shared that with them. And that's the reason for this writing. Silas and Paul was the leader of this group. And Silas and Timothy were part of Paul's ministry team. And they joined him just for this second missionary journey. They weren't with him on the first one, but they joined him on the second one. Dr. Luke is also part of this journey, but he remained behind in Philippi, and he did not come with them to Thessalonica. And so that's the three that we see mentioned here is this ministry team. Now, as verse 1 continues, it says, To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you'll notice there in verse 2, the word church is used here. And this word that's used here, the Greek word, is elklesia. Elklesia. Now, the word elklesia is used 114 times in the New Testament. And this word means called out ones. That's what that word means, is called out ones. Now, citizens of Greek towns would come and they would assemble together and they would carry on and they would conduct governmental business. And this was where that word ecclesia uh, was used was to describe those governmental gatherings that was there. Jesus took this word and Jesus took possession of this word and Jesus began to use this word for his work. In Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus said this, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That word, uh, elklesia, is used right there. My elklesia is you. This is, this is my group. This is my called out group. And Jesus begins to use that to identify this new work that he is doing. Now, people sometimes confuse Israel with the church. Israel is not the church. This is a different gathering of people here that Jesus is talking about. And it says here that to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. The church, this ecclesia that Jesus is talking about, is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what makes this called out group different than that Greek citizens town meeting group. Because this group is called out in the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Called out of the world and into this gathering. They are called out ones. And as we look at this here, Paul 
shares with us and he gives to us a declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In that statement right there, Paul is sharing with us the equality of God the Father and his son Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. There's no difference here in this proclamation. They have precisely the same nature. They have precisely the same attributes, the same perfections. They are co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent. And in this term here, as he phrases this out for us, he shares the deity of Jesus Christ in that passage. And so he lays that out for us. Now, as we look at this and we think about this group, this uh, um, ecclesia, this church, I want us to take just a moment and kind of do just a rabbit trail for just a second. It won't take more than two or three hours, I promise. Now, there are two ways this word is used. The first way that this word is used is in a reference to the universal church. Now, the universal church is what Jesus is speaking about here in Matthew 16, 18. Uh, the, the universal church began in Acts chapter 2. Okay? And the universal church will include everyone who trusts Christ as Lord and Savior until the rapture. Okay? There's an open invitation to join the church, the universal church, from Acts chapter 2 when the church began until the rapture takes place. Once the rapture takes place, the church, this called out group that Jesus is speaking to, will be complete. And that is the bride of Christ. Okay? So right now in the time period we are in, we are in this time period known as the church age. We are in this church time period. And this, this church, this universal church, is all believers in that time period who trusted Christ. They are all in that. And they are in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the universal church. All right? Of those 114 times that we see the church used, the word church used, it's only used in that declaration a few times. Most of the time when the word church is used, it's used in regards to the local church. And that's how we see it being used here in 1 Thessalonians 1. He says, to the church of the Thessalonians. He is speaking of that called out group in Thessalonica. That's the group that he's referring to. When we think sometimes, we often hear during political seasons about the grassroots of that, of that person who's running for office, and it's a grassroots campaign. If we were to use that terminology, the local church is the grassroots campaign for the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We are given certain areas, and that's where we minister. That's where we are. And it's a grassroots program. And as Paul is writing this letter, he's writing this letter to that called out group that's in Thessalonica. He has that specific group, that local church, is on his mind. They are a small part of the universal church. He has this specific portion in mind as he is writing this. And he was thinking about this local group located in the city of Thessalonica. And as they hear this to the church of Thessalonica, they identify with that. 
Hey, that's us. He's speaking to our gathering. He's speaking to our group of people. I'm, I'm a part of that group. And so as he's writing this letter, that is who he's sharing with it. Now, it's certainly applicable to us as being a part of the larger group here at Medina. It's certainly applicable to us. But he is writing specifically to the people of Thessalonica, to that small group. And as he writes this letter, and as we move through this, he's seeking to encourage them. They are going to be experiencing a great amount of persecution. They already have been. He's encouraging them there. They've made a decision to follow Christ. He's helping them and encouraging to continue on that path. There's going to be some things that are going to discourage them. He says, keep the path you're going. Keep the direction you're going. Remember why you trusted Christ. He's going to tell them about his return. He's going to tell them about the return of, of Christ and the rapture, how it's going to take place. He's encouraging them, them with that. He wants them to know that. Now, as he begins writing this to them, we see the salutation here as verse 1 continues. And he says, grace to you and peace. This is a familiar greeting for the Apostle Paul. If you want to sit down this afternoon with the uh, Pauline epistles, you can read through them. And all but one of them says this same thing. Grace to you and peace. It was kind of a popular greeting for Paul. And as he addressed them, this is what he shares with them. As we think about this, the word grace is God's unmerited favor. That is a true story. God's unmerited favor. But I saw something this week that was a great reminder. Grace is God's unmerited favor when we have merited condemnation. We deserve condemnation, but God has given us unmerited grace. Amen. What we don't deserve. Mm. And then he shares peace. Grace has to come first, and then peace follows. And as we look at those other letters, we'll see grace and peace. Grace first, peace comes next. This is not just the absence of conflict. Life with God, peace with Him, and harmony with others. That is peace. Both physical peace and spiritual peace. All is well. That's what he's speaking about here. And think about this instance where they are at. They're facing persecution. They're facing difficulties. And he says, grace and peace. How can you have peace in such a crazy time? Paul wrote this to the church of Philippi. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is Paul's salutation. Regardless of everything that's going on, grace to you and peace from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's where it comes from, from God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the peace that he wants them to have as well. Now, the next thing he does after he shares this greeting is he shares his gratitude. And this would be the part for me that would suck me in, that would make me excited. He says this, we give thanks to God. Now, as we think about this, and as we think about this phrase, we give thanks to God, Paul was always giving thanks. Everything Paul did was giving thanks. Paul's prayers were adorned with thanksgiving. They were 
stocked full of thanksgiving. Paul was one of those people who was thankful. And Paul gave instructions to others to be thankful. As we get to the end of this letter, he shares with them in verse in chapter 5, verse 18, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God. Have you ever had someone walk up to you and go, Man, I just wish I knew what the will of God was. If I just knew what the will of God was in my life, wouldn't that be great? Paul gives it to us right here in black and white. This is the will of God. Give thanks in all circumstances. That was Paul's advice to the church of Thessalonica. And as we look at Paul's life, that was advice he followed. He gave thanks in all circumstances. Thanksgiving is one of those characteristics that as Christ followers, we should all possess. As Christ followers, we have so much to be thankful for. We have so much to be thankful for because we know where all things come from. James shares this with us in James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Thanklessness is a painful condition. Have you ever ran into those people who are thankless? There's no thankfulness in them at all. It seems like when we find ourselves in those moments of thanklessness, we, come, we become susceptible to becoming entitled. We expect it. We're not thankful for it because we expect it. We're entitled to it. Being, thanklessness, being thankless uh, brings us to a point of ungratefulness. Being thankless brings us to a point of being cynical. And as followers of Christ, those shouldn't be things said of us. As followers of Christ, we should be people who are thankful. Because think about it. As a follower of Christ, if you have been born again, Monday morning is as close to hell as you will ever be. Isn't that something to be thankful for? Amen. I mean, this is as bad as it's going to get. Because we have a hope. We should be thankful. <coughs> Thankfulness should be something that permeates from us. Now notice verse 2 as it continues. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you. This would be the part that would be such an exciting thing for me if I was in the church of Thessalonica. We give thanks to God always for all of you. Every last one of them, Paul was thankful. And notice what he says, we give thanks. This is not just Paul, this is the whole ministry team. We give thanks for you. For all of you, we give thanks thanks. How do you think that made the church of Thessalonica feel? I mean, that would make me feel good. I love when I hear my dad, and he's not, maybe not even telling me the truth. Man, son, I'm thankful for you. He could be lying out the side of his mouth. But I hear that, and that puts a little hop in my step. You know, at least someone's thankful for me. 
Uh, I hear that and it's encouraging to me to hear that. When Paul thought of the Thessalonians, he said, boy, you know what? I give thanks to God for you. Why? I'm not worth much. I don't have any money to my name. I look fat and orange. But Paul says, I give thanks for you. I'm thankful for you. Now notice the next word. Constantly. Constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Paul was a man of prayer. And he said, constantly I'm praying for you. Paul was committed to prayer and he was constant in his prayer. And we think about that and think, how could Paul be that way? How could Paul be such a prayer warrior? As a Pharisee, Paul would pray three times a day. He would pray in the morning, pray midday, he would pray in the evening. That was a Pharisee. That was a tradition. That was their practice. You think Paul coming to know Jesus Christ would change that? I would say, yeah, but I would say it would increase it. Because he's been working under the law, trying to maintain the law, has been unable to do that. Now all of a sudden he realizes all the freedom he has in Christ. He's all about being thankful now. He is all about this gift that he's been given. He is now a man of prayer. In fact, look at it when it all began. This is Acts 9 verse 11. It says, The Lord said to him, Rise! And go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. This is just a matter of hours after Paul came to know Christ. <laughs> and God sends this man to go see him and says, you'll know him because he's praying. Saul was a man of prayer. Prayer was constant in Paul's life. I read this this week, and I talked to my wife about it. I said, I read this, and I feel convicted that I am not a man who's constantly in prayer. I'm a man who needs to improve in my prayer life. And I was talking to her about it, I was telling her about it, and we probably got four phone calls this week said, hey, you need to pray for us. So guess what I've been doing? I've been more constant in prayer because I'm mindful of what Paul is doing here. And I'm trying to be more mindful of that in my own life. That I would be more like Paul. And I think as we all sit here, I think we can all say that we need to be more like Paul. Mm. Be men and women of prayer more. Praying for our families. Praying for our neighbors. Praying for our friends. Some of us have prayer lists. Some of us have notebooks. Some of us have phones with prayer sheets in it. Some of us have Bible programs. When you turn it on, your prayer list comes up. That's how mine works. Giving us that opportunity to pray for those things. We need to find something that works for us. Some system that, that applies to us. And you know what? Some of our systems make no sense to anybody else. Isn't that true? We've got to find a system that works for us. My Uncle Bud is a pastor. He's graduated and is home with the Lord now, but I called him when I was in Bible school. And I said, hey, can you recommend to me a good book on prayer? And he said, a good book on prayer? And I said, yeah. And he said, you don't need a book on prayer. Just start praying. 
You don't need to read about what praying's all about. Just start praying. That's what you need. That time you would spend reading about prayer, just start praying during that time. And that was that was like the best advice that I've ever received. And I've shared that advice advice before. Because, I mean, they have books for praying about everything. Pray about your spouse. Pray about your kids. Pray about your dog. Just start praying. Just start praying. And it'll be something that we develop that habit. And it becomes where we find ourselves being constant in prayer. Paul was a man who was constantly in prayer. Why would Paul be so constant in prayer for the people of Thessalonica? Because the people of Thessalonica were his spiritual children. He was there. He's the one who shared the gospel with them and saw them come to know Christ. He shares this in chapter 2, verse 7. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her children. This is a grown man talking about being a nursing mother. <laughs> That's how we were with you. We were that gentle. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear mm -hmm. to us. Mm -hmm. They were dear people to him. They were dear people to him. And he prayed for them. And this is his gratitude that's overflowing for them as he looks at them. So grateful for the people of Thessalonica. I pray for you all the time, constantly giving thanks for you. Now notice the growth. Verse 3. He says, Remembering before our God and Father. Remembering before our God and Father. How does this speak of a recognition here of salvation? Notice that he says, Remembering before our God and Father. Paul sees the people of Thessalonica as his spiritual children. He sees them as his brothers and sisters in Christ. He went to Thessalonica and he proclaimed the gospel to them. This was in Acts 17, verse 2. We read this last week. Most of you were asleep, so I'll read it to you again. It says, Paul went in and was, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. So Paul knew that some of them had believed. Paul knew that they had been born again. He knew that they had trusted Christ as Savior. So he had that assurance of their salvation. But when Paul left, he left under circumstances that weren't ideal. Because the persecution came in. And because of the persecution, this ministry team had to leave behind their spiritual children. Wondering if they were going to be okay. Wondering if they were going to be able to stand strong in the face of persecution. And in fact, Paul and the ministry team went into Greece and they decided that someone needed to go back and check on the people of Thessalonica. Check on the children. Make sure they're okay. 
And Timothy went back. And in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, we'll read that Timothy's return to Corinth. And he shares with Paul, they're doing okay. Amen. They've come to know Christ, and here is the report. And so, as Paul shares with this, as Paul looks at this and thinks about this, he knows there's this assurance of salvation. And he wants to encourage them because of the persecution that they're going to face. And he knows he has this assurance of their salvation because Timothy saw evidence of their salvation. And Paul wants to blow on that small fire and help that fire to grow so that they mature in their relationship with Christ. And he shares three things here that he's heard about the people of Thessalonica. And, and these three things are foundational spiritual qualities for all of us as we live the Christian life. No matter if we live in Thessalonica or we live in a much bigger city like Medina. And these three qualities are what we want to look at. And hopefully these three qualities are what we take home. Look at verse 3. He says, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith. Now, as we read that statement, this could cause some alarm for us. Because we've heard our whole lives that faith and works don't go together. Because salvation is something of faith, foundation, or salvation is not something of works. But yet Paul says, your work of faith. Your work of faith. Paul is the one who wrote this for us in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. He says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works. So why is Paul now saying, remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith? It seems like we have an oxymoron. It seems like Paul has a contradiction here in his own letter. But then we read Ephesians 2, verse 10. And it says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, faith comes first. And then we place our, place our faith in Christ, and then salvation comes. And then after salvation comes, after we're in the family of God, after we've been born again, after we're a child of God, then works come. Not to provide salvation, but as a result of salvation. Amen. And Paul says, as I look at you guys, I am grateful for your works of faith because I know that you've come to know Christ already and the evidence is in your labor. So what kind of works of faith would they be doing? As we progress through this book, we'll see that they've turned from the worship of idols, they've turned from their sins to the living God. There's been a life transformation in them. That's their work of faith. There is evidence that they've been striving to live the Christian life. 
They have love for one another. There are efforts of evangelism as they're trying to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. And there has been a lifestyle change. When a person comes to know Christ, there may not be an instant change where everything just changes overnight. It usually doesn't happen that way. But there's a progress that begins. There's a step that begins to move, a motion that begins to change, and there's a lifestyle change that begins to happen. I've had opportunities to share Christ with people, and they've trusted Christ, and I've always been fearful that I share the real thing, that I share it correctly. Should I have shared more? Should I have told them more? And they'll call me and they'll say, Pastor, all it feels like I do is confess sin. <laughs> You've got it. You've got it. That is a work of faith because all of a sudden they realize their sin. All of a sudden they realize they need to turn from that sin and walk with Christ. Amen. And that's what Paul says. Hey, Timothy told me about your work of faith. He says, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love. This is the second thing that he sees. This word for labor here carries the idea of sacrificial labor. Not just labor that's, that's convenient. Not just labor that's ordinary. But sacrificial labor. And the word that he uses here for love is agape love. This is the love that God has. This is a sacrificial love. And he says, remember before our God and Father your work of faith and your sacrificial labor of sacrificial love. That's what I see in y'all. That's what's exciting. Because you love each other and it shows. And you do things for each other that you don't normally do for people. There's something about you guys. I see that in you. And the last thing he says is I see the steadfastness of hope. Steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This steadfastness of hope is not just wishful thinking. Man, I wish it would snow today because I wouldn't have to mow the lawn tomorrow. <laughs> it's just wishful thinking, right? Uh, even for May, early May, not so much. Okay, last week. But anyway, that's just wishful thinking. But this steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ is different. Biblical hope is the certainty of receiving from God what he has promised. It's a certainty. And that's what he's speaking about here. As I look at you people, you church of Thessalonica, you, you cuties, the thing that amazes me about you is your steadfastness of hope. This hope you have in Christ, you're immovable in this. Timothy, we sent him back to check on you, and we were so worried about y'all. But now that you, I get this report, I see that all of this persecution's coming, and you guys are standing fast. Your faith in Christ, your faith and your hope in Christ is so secure. What a refreshment to see. And their steadfast hope was resting in the Lord Jesus Christ. If our steadfast hope is resting in anything else, we are doing nothing more than wishful thinking. Mm 
Our steadfast hope has to be resting in Jesus Christ alone. Our hope in the forgiveness of sin. If you're holding on to how many times you've attended church in the last week, return is resting on anything other than Christ. It's just wishful thinking. Standing in the face of persecution, if we're doing that without a steadfast hope in Christ, we're just wishful thinking. The church of Thessalonians, they had a steadfast hope. And that steadfast hope was resting in the Lord Jesus Christ. So there you have it. Greetings, gratitude, and growth. What do we take home from this? What do we apply to our Sunday afternoon, our Monday morning? I think the first thing that really just gripped me this week is Paul was a man of continual prayer. Paul was a man of continual prayer. Darcy's mom was a woman of continual prayer. And I could call her about anything. And she would pray for us. And I knew she would pray for us. She would call and she would ask about those requests. And there are people that we have in our lives who are, who are men and women of continual prayer that we know that we can call upon. Let's be those men and women ourselves. Let's be those people that can be called on like Paul and be people of continual prayer. Paul was that example, an example we should strive to follow. Paul was a man of thanksgiving. That's what I want to be. I want to be a man of thanksgiving. And I don't want to be a man of thanksgiving that just celebrates it on the fourth Thursday of every November. I look like I'm that guy. <laughs> I don't want to be that guy. But I want to be someone who is known as someone who is thankful. Because aren't those the fun people to be around? Aren't those the people that you know they've got something else that's, that's greater than what we have here? And we do have something greater than what we have here. And we should be living that. People should be seeing that in us. Paul was a man of thanksgiving. And you know what else I take home from this? <laughs> Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the one who came into this world <coughs> to take away our sins. And if we place our hope in anything other than Jesus Christ, our sins are not going to be removed. And there will be hell to pay for that. I don't know where you are in your journey through life, but if you've never turned to Christ and recognized Him as your Lord and Savior, don't let today go by without doing that. Because He is the one. He is the one. He lived a perfect life, and He gave His life as a ransom for many. And if we're trusting in anything else other than Christ, we're trusting in sinking sand. Mm -hmm. We need to be trusting in Christ. So think about that this morning. Repent of your sins. Turn from your sins and turn to Christ. There was abounding evidence of salvation in the church of Thessalonica. Timothy, when he came back to Paul, he says, Paul... They know Jesus. They know Jesus. And the church in Thessalonica is growing, Paul, because they know Jesus. There was evidence of faith in Christ. When you walk by the mirror 
and you look in the mirror, is there evidence of salvation in your life? If someone was to hang out with you for longer than just the two hours on Sunday morning, would people see Jesus in you? Would there be evidence of salvation in your life? Would people be able to see the work of faith in your life? That there's been a change in your life over the time period that you've, quote unquote, been a follower of Christ? As they look at you, would they be able to identify the labor of love that you have? Your sacrificial giving, your sacrificial serving, your sacrificial walk with Christ, would they see that in you? Would they look at you and see that steadfast hope? Certainly in this day and age, in this time period that we live in, there sure is a lack of hope, isn't there? Mm -hmm. We're looking for something else to give us hope. We're identifying all of these different things to bring us hope. Our hope needs to be in Christ. Amen. Christ alone. He's the one who's going to spare us. He's the one who's going to save us. He's the one who's going to redeem us. Amen. He's the one that we need to be steadfast set upon. Mm. It can't be our newest vehicle or our fanciest <laughs> house or our job. We need to be steadfast and immovable looking to Christ because that's what the future holds. Everything else is, is sinking sand.